I'm actually going to um, read that passage um, from a different source, uh, from actually from the Jesus Storybook Bible, because uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible is not just a resource for children, um, it's actually a resource for all of us, and, and I love the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones communicates this passage, so just bear with me while I read um, the Tower of Babel from uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible. Noah and his family lived in the land, and his children had children, and then those children had even more. Well, you get the picture, until there were lots of people on the earth once more. Now back then, everyone spoke exactly the same language, so you didn't need to learn Swahili or Japanese or anything, because you could just say hello to anyone, and they knew exactly what you meant. One day, everyone was talking, and they came up with an idea. Let's build ourselves a beautiful city to live in. It can be our home. And we can be safe forever and ever. Then they had another idea. And let's build a really tall tower to reach up to heaven. Yes, they said, we'll say, look at us up here. And everyone will look up to us. And we'll be able to look down on them. And then we'll know that we are really something. We'll be like God. We'll be famous and safe and happy. And everything will be all right. So they got to work. Brick by brick, the tower grew higher and higher until it soared above the city, touching the sky. They built stairs in the tower to climb to the top. It was like a giant staircase to heaven. Look, they cheered, look at us. See what we can do with our very own hands. They were quite pleased with themselves. But God wasn't pleased with them. God could see what they were doing. They were trying to live without him. But God knew that wouldn't make them happy or safe or anything. If they kept kept on like this... They would only destroy themselves, and God loved them too much to let that happen, so he stopped their plans. One morning, they went to work as usual, but everything was different. Their words were all new and funny. You see, God had given each person a completely different language. Suddenly, no one understood what anyone else was saying. It wasn't easy to work together after that, as you can only imagine. People were always fighting and getting in a dreadful muddle and becoming grumpier and grumpier until at last they were all too cross to keep on building and just had to stop. After that, people scattered all over the world, which is how we ended up with so many different languages to this day. You see, God knew however high they reached, however hard they tried, people could never get to heaven by themselves. People didn't need a staircase. They needed a rescuer. Because the way to heaven wasn't a staircase, it was a person. People could never reach up to heaven, so heaven would have to come down to them. And one day, it would. Let us pray. Father, there are those of us here whose hearts are full. Father, we know the richness of your love. Father, there are those of us here whose hearts are weary. We're tired. Things don't make sense. Life doesn't seem to be working out. And Father, all of us today need to drink deeply of your gospel. And I pray that through your word uh, this evening that you would bring gospel freedom and rest to all of us because we desperately need it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, not too long ago, I saw this billboard. You've seen these kind of billboards before where uh, it's some large development um, that's got a billboard trying to sell you something. This one happened to be a a lake property. 
um, is this beautiful picture of a house on this just beautiful lake. Um, and, and the pitch line was this. It's not your property, it's your legacy. See, the idea that this developer was trying to sell is that this is much more than just a piece of property. This is about building something greater than that. This is about building something that would last. You know, and this actually, this sales pitch, it, it speaks the same language in Genesis 11. Uh, this billboard, in essence, is saying the same thing that the people of Babel said. Let us make a name for ourselves. You know, in the garden, Satan tempts Adam and Eve with the question, does God really love you? And if he doesn't love you, then he's holding out on you and you should just go and get it for yourself. And really, that same lie is being carried over into Genesis 11. The people of Babel are being tempted to believe that very same thing. You know, the command that was given by God in Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, that stood for the people of Babel. And yet they refused to do it. You know, God said, look, have children, exercise dominion, scatter so that my image bearers are all over the earth. But they didn't do that. What did they do? They chose to gather instead of scatter. They craved safety and security. We read that from the passage of a city. Right? They didn't want to have to go out into the world. And on top of that, hey, let's build this tower that reaches to the heavens. Let's be like God. Let's deal with God on our terms, not his terms. Let's make a name for ourselves. And God's response to that, you know, we, we, Old Testament sarcasm is kind of hard to get sometimes, but in verse 5, like, it's supposed to be a joke that their best efforts are so insignificant that God has to come down to even get a, get a look at the tower, right? He exposes their efforts as insignificant. This doesn't impress God. It doesn't get God's attention, it does elicit a response from God, but it's not one of praise. What does he do? He comes down to unravel them, to confuse their language, to scatter them. He comes down to do this because he knows that if the people of Babel, if they continue down this road, it'll destroy them. Right? One pastor puts it this way, that God loved the people of Babel too much to leave them in the hell of unhappiness that flows from trying to do his job. So God comes down not to applaud how impressive they are, but he actually comes and he showcases how impressive he is. He comes down in judgment. He frustrates their efforts. You know, he shows these self-worshipping sinners, right, that he is God and they are not. But what's interesting here is that even in judgment, there's mercy. There's mercy. It's here. The people of Babel, remember, they were meant to scatter. They were meant to go be image bearers across the earth, and they chose to gather. And so even now, God does for them what they were unwilling and unable to do for themselves. That God in his severe mercy by stopping their plans, he does for them what they cannot do for themselves. Well, this Tower of Babel story really is a, it's a vivid picture of us, of how inescapably, inescapably driven we are to make a name for ourselves. So if, if we peel back the layers a little bit of, of what that means, make a name for ourselves, here's what I propose. It means that we look at what we can do 
to create our own significance. We look at what we can do to establish our own value, to generate our own worth, to build something for ourselves. Um, Theologically, and we actually just talked about this, we know, okay, we all know this as Christians, we're justified, made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, right? And because of that, we have the unconditional love of the Father, right? This is 100% true that the Father loves us in the same way that he loves his Son, right? Theologically, that's true. Functionally, we don't live as if that is true. Every day, we don't live as that is true. <clears throat> we are tempted to believe this same lie of Satan that he tempted Adam and Eve with. God doesn't really love you. God is holding out on you. It's up to you to go get it yourself. If we make our life about going and making a name for ourselves, we are acting as our own God. Make a name for yourself. Provide for yourself. Create safety yourself. Find happiness yourself. Here's the good news. The good news of the gospel is that it must invade the dark places of our hearts that say, I am my own God. So what does this look like for you individually? What does this look like for you corporately as Red Mountain? What are the things that you are pursuing in order to obtain value, worth, and significance? Because the reality in which we live is that the world is constantly urging you and I to go and make a name for ourselves. And that every day you and I will wake up being tempted to do this in something else besides God. It's true for every single one of us. We couldn't possibly list uh, what these might be, but, but here's a few of them that at least I am tempted um, to find my value and worth and significance in. Maybe you will too. Work. Right? We live in a world that the reality is that you are what you do. That's how you get defined a lot of times. Is your success in your work the litmus test for your own significance? Because most, if not all of us, work in jobs, we are all measured by our performance. I mean, if you're a student, you get measured by your performance. And we're all tempted to believe that our value and significance is a, is a direct result of this. Um, some of you may work in jobs that have deadlines. We don't have a lot of deadlines in ministry. <laughs> but you may be tempted to make deadlines all about your performance. This overinflated view of yourself. I have to get this done. Right? This is all riding on me. Can actually just be a cover up. That you are finding your value and your significance in what you do. Relationships. We all have relationships here. And we can fall into the trap of seeing our value and our validation from other people. Now this could be a spouse. Could be a boss. It could be a child. You know, if I can just make them happy, I'll have value. If I can meet their expectations, then I'll be a success. If my children fulfill the hopes and dreams that I have for them, then I will have fulfillment. Right? But when we look to another person for our primary source of fulfillment, we are making that person our functional savior. And that is something that no person can possibly live up to. 
Well, it could be an idealized form of your life. And this is where you just fill in the blank yourself. If only I got this job. I got this house. I married this person. I was a a better version of myself. I looked better. I felt better. If I lived in this neighborhood, whatever it might be. And what we are dealing with here is two very different forms of reality. This is the reality of the world. And it's what we might call a, what I'm going to call a ladder-defined life. The ladder-defined life is one where we do all that we can to get from one rung to the next. Okay? The higher we climb whatever area of life, the more value and significance we have. It's all about attaining reputation, value, significance. And look, we, can, we do a really good job of spiritualizing this too, right? So God is at the top of the ladder and he is that constant encourager for us, right? And he's yelling, yelling for us to climb, right? But it's our responsibility, right? It's all on us. The higher and better our climb, the happier God is, right? The more we've made it. And on those days when we're not climbing so well... You know, maybe God loves us a little bit less and less. On those days when you can't even get on the ladder, right? God is frowning at you. Well, so what ends up happening is that we spend our lives trusting in ourselves and what we can do and what we think we can attain. But here's the reality that Jesus not only offers, but he actually provides in himself. And it's what we might call a cross-defined life. So God doesn't sit at the top of a ladder yelling, climb. God came down, he hung on a cross, and he declared, it is finished. See, Jesus came down and he replaced our ladders with his cross. Because what the cross says is that Jesus came to do for you and I what we could never do for ourselves. One huge impact, we've actually already done this today in our confession of sin, is that we are now actually free to acknowledge our own weaknesses, right? And the world will tell you, hide your weaknesses at all costs, right? Do not show your weaknesses. But our weaknesses don't actually threaten our worth and our value. The cross is the answer to our own efforts at self-worth and self-validation. That uh, We redeemed sinners can now rest that no matter how hard we try, we actually can't do it. Jesus came to do it for us. Your sin will say you'll never please God with your actions, but the gospel says God is pleased with you on the basis of Jesus' actions. See, God came down to save us, to set us free, and that's what the cross does. It frees us from the slavery of having to rescue ourselves. It frees us from the pressure of having to make it on our own. It frees us from the demand to measure up and the burden to get it all right. It frees us from the obligation of having to fix ourselves and having to try and fix other people. And it frees us from the restlessness of finding our own value, of generating our own worth, of of creating our own significance. It frees you and I from, from pursuing a reputation above all else. And it actually frees us to pursue the kind of life that Jesus desires for us. We heard from Philippians 2 earlier that Jesus became nothing. That he 
in a very real sense, was willing to give up his name, empty himself, become a servant, and die on the cross. And in doing so, he was highly exalted and he was bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This morning at Covenant, our scripture reading was from Acts 5. Peter and the apostles are being accused and questioned by the high priest. And one of their answers is that God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance and forgiveness of sins. So in Jesus being exalted, that also means that the Holy Spirit has descended and has been given to us. And what the Holy Spirit provides for us is this means by which we can now pursue a life of repentance and a life of faith. We now have that enabling provision. That's what one of my seminary professors called it. And I love that phrase, the enabling provision of the Holy Spirit. That we are now free from hiding and running to other things to give us what only Christ can. And we are now free and actually able to run to Christ over and over. For his grace is free and his love is inexhaustible. So here's what I want to leave you with today. If you've not heard anything up to this point. Your value has nothing to do with you. It is firmly established in Jesus' accomplishments, not yours. In Jesus' strength, not yours. In Jesus' performance, not yours. You are not what you do. You are what Jesus has done for you. Your value is in the very righteousness that Jesus secured for you and has given freely to you. And by having the righteousness of Christ... You now eternally possess the only value that matters, and that is the value that God places on you as his son or daughter. Your creator, your heavenly father, looks upon you and sees Jesus. And that approval, that value of the only one, that is, it's forever fixed and it's forever secure. It will not go away because if, if you and I are in Christ... Colossians talks about being in Christ, our life is hidden in the very life of God himself. Which means that our value exists completely outside of ourselves and it is held secure and it is fixed by Christ at the right hand of the Father in the throne room of heaven. That's consistent. It will not change. I want to leave you with... um, Some homework. Two questions to ponder, to wrestle with, to think on this week. First, what would it look like for you to take what God has done for you more seriously than what you've done for yourself? And in that, if we do that, that's going to feel weird because God's ways are not our ways. You know, His operating system is that of grace, and that's not how the world works. And honestly, we're so used to relying on ourselves that this is going to feel backwards. And then second, what do you do with those towers that you've built? What do you do with those things that you have relied on to give you value and worth and significance? Because there's a really good chance that those things are beautiful things and they are gifts of God. 
it might actually be your greatest, greatest accomplishment. The thing that you're most proud of may be the thing that you need to repent of the most for attempting to find value and significance in it. But begin to pray that God might take those things that you have made all about yourself and that he, by his spirit, would begin to make them all about loving him and loving others. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. And Father, we are all guilty of looking elsewhere for value, for worth, for significance. Father, this seems like it is such a busy season. Father, would you give us freedom and rest? Would you remind us that Jesus, you came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And you declared it is finished. And that you hold us secure you hold, that, hold us in the, in the very life of God, in the throne room of heaven. In your name we pray, amen.